Welcome back to another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites, a nerdy news podcast where three entomologists with the National Pest Management Association compete to see who can do the best job at covering a recent science discovery or news headline. Uh, I'm one of your co-hosts, Jim Fredericks, and I'm joined by my two brilliant co-hosts, Brittany Campbell. Hi. And Michael Bentley. Now, normally... Normally, this is where we introduce our special guest for the episode, but this episode, our guest is a live audience at Pest World 2021 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, this is the largest gathering of pest control operators anywhere in the world and is definitely the largest gathering of pest control operators uh, in the past two years. So this is the, the date that we're all getting back together. Mike, why don't you take a minute to go ahead and, uh, uh, and introduce yourself to the audience. All right, everybody, so what we would like to do is allow our special guests to introduce themselves. So usually we have one special guest, but you all as a live audience are our special guests. So I'm not gonna put anyone on the spot, but if you would like to introduce yourself to um, all of the listeners out there, go ahead and raise your hand and we'll ask you to tell us what your name is, what the name of your company is, and where you're located. Yes, sir. Norman Connolly, Connolly Pest Management, Mesa, Arizona. Excellent. And if you vote for me, I've got a $5 bill in it for you. Yes, sir. I've got 10. Christian Wilcox, Macaulay Services in Central Arkansas. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. All right. We got another one. Go ahead. Uh, Jen Fox and Tammy Hart with Terminix, and we're uh, countrywide. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. David Hernandez with La Cunada Pest Control out of La Cunada Flint Ridge, California. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, David Marshall, Arizona Pest Squad, Tempe, Arizona. Thanks for being here, David. Hi, Eddie Thornton. Carl, I'm sorry, Carl Harris, fanatic termite and pest, Bowie, Maryland, and this guy trained me. <laughs> oh, that's, that's an inside vote. I don't like this. We may not allow him to vote. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, chocolate covered crickets, and that's why he'll that be how, voting Frederick. Is that oh. how you hazed people? He's never fed me crickets, so now I'm really upset. Hi, Betty Thornton, Alvin Pest Control, Alvin, Texas. Thanks, Betty. I think we got one more over here. Keep it brief, sir. Dr. Lucas Carnahan, I'm with American Pest in the DMV area in Maryland. Awesome, thanks, Lucas. All right, back to you, Jim. All right, so um, thanks everyone for joining us today. We really do appreciate the support for the Bug Bites podcast and your support here at Pest World. Um, we typically, at this point, will transition into our competition. And uh, it's interesting because this is the first time we've ever recorded this podcast while we were in the same room. Did you realize that? This oh, that's wild. right. Yeah. yeah. First time we've ever done it in the same room. Typically, we're on Zoom in different, either in different offices at, uh, at the NPMA headquarters or in our homes. We started this podcast during the pandemic, and so it can get a little bit heated in the competition, so I'm going to ask Brittany to please keep your hands to yourself. I was about to say, now I can hit you. No. This is awesome. No. <laughs> uh, typically, uh, the first person to go, right, to, pre pre to present their paper um, is the person who won the last, uh, the last contest, and that is me. Awful lot of gloating going on right now. Yeah. So as the winner of the last uh, competition, I will go first. But the two of you are going to need to do rock, paper, scissors to determine who goes next or last. That's right. Yeah. So 
to make sure that we keep it fair, we do rock, paper, scissors. Now, she usually cheats when she does this. I can tell you right now, you'll notice, everybody can attest to this. She'll be slow when she throws. She kind of waits to see what I'm going to put out there. So That's not true. I usually have to do it in front of a camera. Hand up, Campbell. So it's one, two, three, shoot. One, two, three, shoot. One, two, three, shoot. All right. Rock crushes scissors. So, Brittany, it's your choice. You're going to go. I'm going last. You're going to go last. I'm going right? last. Bat and clean up. All right. All right. So, Mike, you want to start the timer? Yeah, so we definitely time ourselves. So, and just to recap for everybody, so the way that this works is each one of us are going to give a quick summary of our paper or article that we've chosen. The timer will start after we read our ridiculously long titles for our publications, um, and we have five minutes to do so. And there's probably going to be a hefty penalty for going over five minutes. Hefty penalty. Hefty penalty. All right. Okay, th so the paper that I chose this um, month is uh, titled... Queen egg laying and hatching abilities are hindered in subterranean termite policy <laughs> policies. Termite policies. Um, queen egg laying and hatching abilities are hindered in subterranean termite colonies when exposed to chitin synthesis inhibitor bait formulations. Start. This research was performed at the University of Florida by Tomas Shavank and Sangbin Lee and was published in the Journal of Economic Entomology. One of the things I really liked about this paper is that I thought it did two things. One, it pulled back the curtain on how termite baits impact termite queen egg laying. And two, it was really well written. It told a great story as far as um, uh, uh, scientific papers go. So I'm going to assume that all of our listeners and our audience here understand how termite baits work and what chitin synthesis inhibitors are. But to recap, uh, worker termites find the bait. Termites share the bait with the rest of the colony. The bait stops termites from creating chitin. Termites die when they molt, and the termite problem is fixed, right? In a nutshell, that's kind of how it works. Now, uh, despite the fact that all termites in the colony receive a lethal dose of the active ingredient during the baiting process, soldiers and reproductives are not directly affected um, because they don't molt as adults. Uh, interesting, Interestingly, termite workers continue to molt throughout their lives, even as fully grown adults, until they eventually die of old age. Younger workers molt more frequently than older workers, um, and this is in contrast to other social insects like ants and social bees, wasps, and hornets, in which the workers, the adult workers, don't molt. Uh, one of the hallmarks, uh, hallmarks of a termite colony that's being controlled by chitin synthesis inhibitors is the lack of workers in the colony. Since worker termites feed soldiers and, and reproductives, when worker termites are gone, the other members eventually die of starvation. But the question is, why aren't workers replaced in a colony by newly hatched eggs? Um, is it because the first instar larvae don't survive their first molt? Or is it because queens are not laying viable eggs? And this, has been a, this is a tough question to answer because um, of the cryptic nature of termites. So to get to the bottom of the question, Formosan termites in this study were exposed to Novaflumeron, which is a chitin synthesis inhibitor, and those, those termites were compared to colonies that were not exposed to the insecticide. 
Uh, now, instead of full-blown mature colonies that might be infesting a structure in the field, the authors in this case used incipient colonies. And what that means is a, um, a king and queen pair. So it's a brand new colony. Um, and that's just simply because the number of workers and eggs present in those types of colonies were more manageable and could be counted. So here's the rundown. This is what they found. In both studies, uh, queens began laying eggs about five days after founding the colony. After 10 days, the number of eggs in Nova Flumeron treated colonies uh, were significantly less than in untreated colonies. By day 35, untreated colonies began showing uh, larvae from the hatching eggs, but no larvae emerged in Nova Flumeron treated colonies. Most eggs were then eventually cannibalized by the king and queen in the treated colonies. So they actually ate their own eggs, uh, while untreated colonies increased in population by 74%. By day 100, all kings and queens in the treated colonies were dead. So here's the bottom line. This research shows uh, that queens and colonies exposed to chitin synthesis inhibitors laid fewer eggs than normal queens. The eggs that were laid didn't develop, then the queens ate the eggs and colonies were unable to become established. In mature colonies, the same process should occur, resulting in no new workers and eventual collapse of the colony. So there you go. The timing, I hate to say it. This was impressive, Jim. This You're under four minutes. First That's a record. time ever. I usually get demerits. You mu yeah, you must have practiced for once. I did not practice. <laughs> I didn't even read the paper. <laughs> <laughs> I see some scribbles over there. Or I guess you're paying Mike now to write them up. I'm not sure, but it was, a, it was an okay job. Thanks. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. You're very confident right now, Dr. Campbell. I'm not sure what you've got up your sleeve. Feeling cocky. So um, one of the things we normally would do with our, with our guests is uh, take a couple of questions. We uh, refuse all questions from Dr. Lucas Carnahan, who probably knows more about this than the authors that wrote this paper, and suspect he may have some inside knowledge. Uh, but is there anybody else here that might have a question? <laughs> no, seriously, Lucas, no questions. Mm -mm. And I'm not that confident. All right, well, cool. Well, that's fine. That means I explained it perfectly. Oh, I was told yesterday that I am um, I'm a better explainer than the person I was talking to is an understander. Uh, so... Maybe that's the maybe that's it. Steve, just uh, give us your name again, and uh, and then your question. So Christian Wilcox, uh, Macaulay Services. So they've shown that egg production, viable eggs, were decreased. But uh, what's the conclusion uh, or, or presumed um, conclusion? Is chitin used in egg production itself? Well, the eggs were so the the egg production was uh, decreased. And uh, the the then no larvae hatched from them, and so it's not it's not clear if there if I mean it, it's likely that the um, that there's that whatever is happening is causing those eggs to be non-viable, right? And because the, and then you saw then because there there were no um, uh, workers in the colony, and you just had this king and queen that were relying on their fat stores from previous. Then they started to eat those eggs anyway, um, just to get some sort of source of nutrition. Um, so it's not clear exactly what, from, from this paper, what exactly is happening, but there was never any larva hatching from those eggs to begin with, so they were just not viable. I would have given that to Dr. Carnahan. Yeah, that's why I refuse to give him the microphone. You won't even look at him. You won't even look at him over there. 
All right, so uh, Mike Bentley, you're up next. All right, excellent work. Um, so the bar has been lowered quite a bit, <laughs> but I think that uh, I'll be able to bring the audience back in and get everybody excited again. Just kidding, Jim has a really good job. This is usually well, about Luke, the... Luke, by the way, Dr. Carnahan just gave me the thumbs up. So. <laughs> Dang it. Lucas, stop it. And I'm yeah. counting on Carl's vote, too. So. Oh, man, I know. Too, too many insiders in this room right now voting for Jim already. I'm, I'm a little bit nervous. Um, okay, so the title of my paper is Know Your Foe. Synanthropic spiders are deterred by semiochemicals of European fire ants. So web-building spiders are a notoriously challenging structural pest group to manage. Commonly used control tactics include exclusion, physical removal, or changing exterior lights that could attract insect prey. While effective, these non-control or non-chemical solutions don't always provide long-term control. But even chemical control solutions often historically have provided mixed results for long-term success. So in a search for a better control option, researchers have turned to natural predators for a solution. Scientists in British Columbia observed that areas with a high density of ants also had a low density of spiders, and with several spiders, and that several spiders would actively disperse when exposed to chemical cues from some predatory ants, which would inherently make sense, right? Because if ants are eating spiders, then spiders would need to evolve some level of an avoidance strategy as a response to be able to survive in the presence of these predators. So, these researchers hypothesized that spiders were actually able to detect ant-derived semiochemicals and that these semiochemicals could actively deter the spiders. So to test this hypothesis, researchers evaluated the responses of four different species of spider, the false black widow, the western black widow, the cross spider, and the hobo spider, when exposed to semiochemicals from three different ant species, the European fire ant, the black garden ant, and the western carpenter ant. To test their hypothesis, the researchers exposed each species of ant to filter paper for 12 hours, so the filter paper would absorb the semiochemicals left behind by the ants. Then they offered the spiders a choice between walking over ant-exposed filter paper or treated filter paper or a control, which was non-exposed filter paper in a closed system. What they found was that the semiochemicals left behind by European fire ants significantly deterred false black widow Western black widow, and hobo spiders. And they also observed that those spiders acted, uh, the semiochemicals acted as a moderate deterrent to cross spiders. Importantly, similar deterrent results were not observed for the black garden ant or the Western carpenter ant, suggesting that this deterrent effect was specific and potentially unique to the European fire ant. Some possible explanations that the authors offered for these results could have been that the European fire ant semiochemicals are simply Higher, have a higher potency than the others, or that the aggressive nature of fire ants in general has led to an evolutionary adaptation by spiders to avoid the combative ants. These findings justify research that could potentially lead to new deterrents or repellents for spiders, specifically medically important spiders such as the black widow and even other structural pests. But this work could be a long ways off because researchers are still unclear as to exactly what the chemical makeup of those fire ant semiochemicals are. So more work is still needed to identify and isolate what those deposits are. And even if they do identify them, these semiochemicals, and this is true amongst most ants, are notoriously short-lived and incredibly volatile. So there are major hurdles to developing something that would have the ability to persist over time when exposed to environmental variables. Nevertheless, this is exciting research that highlights a potentially new tool that could be developed in the future to help control spiders. Shut up. You did it 
This is a new record too. Three minutes Three? and thirteen seconds. Yeah, I don't even believe Pin it. Drop. Mike is. I think it's negative. It's a demerit for going so quickly. Yeah. You didn't even demerit. prepare for that. You're just demerit. winging it. So, it's totally fine if there are no questions. How about some questions? Are there any questions on that? Like what in the world? Oh, oh, Lucas okay. Carnahan, no. Doctor <laughs> Lucas Carnahan. Yeah. So I'm just wondering. Uh, it, you know, I know Mike that you've you've handled fire ants in the past. Uh, would you say that it's a possibility of just using the ants themselves and just contain them to uh, use them as repellent properties to keep the spiders off the house uh, instead of trying to derive the chemicals and make sure they last long enough and all that? So, Dr. Carnahan, to make sure I understand your question clearly, is it that you are suggesting that folks infest their yard with red imported or European fire ants as a spider deterrent? Well. So uh, you, you'd have to contain them somehow, right? And you're an expert in containing ants because you studied them for years. So how, do you, how would one contain, keep ants contained around the house uh, to uh, repel spiders with them? So the fire ants can't you know, get in your house or sting you or any of that. Gotcha. So rather than a full-blown infestation, just massive uh, ant farms all around the yard. I think this sounds like an excellent idea and excellent job security for the structural pest control industry as a whole. We don't have to worry about Lucas ever getting rich and leaving the industry. <laughs> Any other questions for Mike? All right, so that means that it's Brittany's, uh, Brittany's turn here, and she previously was the record holder for fastest uh, explanation. Oh, all we'll right. See. Let's see how it goes. Are you guys ready for the winning session, right? Yeah? Okay. Um, now I'm a little bit nervous because now we have all these entomologists, and I just have to say that I'm terrible with scientific names. If it's not a bed bug, I'm going to mess it up. Don't giggle at me. Ixodes. Shut up, Jim. I edit that out. I shouldn't tell my boss to shut up. Okay. I'm going to put that part on loop. <laughs> okay. So the title of my paper is Responses of Red Flower Beetle Adults, Tribolium castaneum, and Other Stored Product Beetles to Different Pheromone Trap Designs. Now, this article was published in 2020 in the journal Insects uh, by two researchers by the names of Carl Dowd and Thomas Phillips. And as many of you, I'm sure, work with store product beetles, then you already know that the red flower beetle is one of the most important stored product pests in commercial food facilities. And a standard practice for monitoring for these beetles in facilities is through the use of traps. Now, the researchers for this study evaluated a particular commercial pitfall trap versus sticky traps to see how well they could capture specifically the red flower beetle. Now, a pitfall trap is essentially a trap that has been modified into a cup. It usually has rough outer edges for an insect to easily climb up on the outside of the surface, and then a smooth inner surface that causes the insect to slip and slide inside and then become trapped inside of the pit. So hence the name pitfall trap as the insect literally falls down into a pit. So that's why those traps are named pitfall traps. Now, the pitfall trap that these researchers evaluated also had an aggregation pheromone and a food oil component to help capture and attract the beetles. So in order to do this research, the researchers conducted four different studies in commercial wheat flour mills. 
and the manager stated to the researchers that the mill produces 750,000 kilograms of flour per day, and the mill operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So they're seeing a lot of red flower beetles, right? Uh, now, they place traps throughout eight floors of the mill in areas where they process the wheat, store, and package the finished products. They set out a total of 26 traps, both pitfall and sticky traps, and then they went back and collected and counted the number of beetles that were caught every two weeks. Now, for the purposes of today, we're only going to talk about the red flower beetle, but not surprisingly, they were able to provide data on other beetles that were captured during the study, uh, some of which they had not even intended to catch, uh, but there were a variety of stored product beetles in the facility, so that should be an account one of you should pick up. Uh, they also then did a second study with only the pitfall traps, but then they wanted to answer the question, can we make this trap better by adding a dust cover? Uh, not surprisingly, these facilities get very dusty and they can quickly cause a trap to not work if the dust gets into the food oil component or if it piles up and causes the smooth inner surface to no longer be slippery. So they did a similar setup in the mill, but this time they used the commercialized pitfall trap and compared it to a modified trap where they just created a very simple PVC dust cover to fit over the commercialized trap to see if they could capture more beetles by eliminating all of the dust in the environment. In the first study, they found that the pheromone pitfall trap was superior to just the sticky traps for the red flower beetle, capturing 21 beetles versus just five in the sticky trap. So if you're using sticky traps, you might want to try a pitfall trap if you're having an issue with stored product pests. In areas that were extremely dusty, the modified PVC cover captured on average about five more beetles per trap. And this, of course, was not surprising because the accumulation of dust can render a trap useless if the beetles can easily escape the surface or the pheromone lure or food oil attractant become contaminated. Now, this paper had a direct impact because the manufacturers of this particular trap actually modified their trap based on the dust cover designed by the researchers, and it is now commercially available uh, by another trade name, the Dome Trap. I am not promoting this trap, by the way, but this is a direct impact. We often talk about what happens to this research. How does it get utilized? A very simple study, a very simple idea, actually became a product that we now uh, use for these particular beetles. Uh, so now it is a treatment strategy to better manage these pests. 4.18. I never talk more than you guys usually. That's odd. Very long. Well under five. Very, oh, very no, you long. get a demerit for being so short. We have never given you a demerit I, for being short. I was so just going to say, <laughs> how dare you accuse us of being short? <laughs> so that's really cool, Brittany. I, uh, this is, I really like that paper. You knew that this, you, I was going to like this before. I'm sneaky. She sent this to me a week ago. And I love papers like this that are really uh, applicable, right? It's applied science. There's a direct, in this case, there's a direct impact on the industry that's seen through a commercialized product. And you don't always see that. Some of the research is, um, you know, it's, it may help 5, 10, 15 years down the road as the knowledge bases build up. But in this case, it's a direct, um, a direct impact on how pest management professionals can do their jobs. 
I really appreciate that, Jim. I feel like you're saying that I've won this contest. Yeah, I feel like my paper's being attacked because it was the early work of a potentially groundbreaking, uh, you know, spider control mechanism. No, so I, we're releasing fire ants out into the world. Okay, no, I will not have Dr. Carnahan taint <laughs> my paper. <laughs> Thank you, Lucas. I paid him all on the side. Welcome back, everyone. This is the <laughs> Lucas Carnahan Show. <laughs> All right. Uh, does anyone have any questions for Dr. Campbell? Uh-oh. Oh. Oh, yes. Oh, no. <laughs> Sir, please uh, go ahead and state your name, what company you're with, and what's your question. Uh, thank you, Dr. Penley. Uh, I'm Mark Vanderwerp with Rose Pest Solutions. And uh, my question is, so you said this particular paper was published in 2020. Was that right? Yeah, I believe so, yes. And you said this inspired the dome trap redesign, which has been on the market for like four years? I can actually answer this question. Okay. I called the researcher because I'm that nerdy, and I asked him for the story behind it. And so he had been a student at Kansas State. He left. He's now in mosquito control with the Mosquito District. And if you're familiar with academia, you have to get papers. And so I think... Um, read it between the lines here, but I think his former professor was like, hey, we need to publish this paper because I need this paper, you know, because I'm a professor and I have to report back. So the product gets commercialized, comes out. The manufacturers were well aware of it. It was in his uh, thesis, this book they have to write. Um, but finally, he actually wrote the paper. It gets published after the product is out. Publishing things sometimes can take a while as well. So I will defend the researcher not knowing who they are um, and that publication can often, the cogs and the wheels of publication can move much slower sometimes. I will say he was friendly, but I think he was very confused. When I was like, hey, we run this Bug Bites podcast. I just want to learn more about your paper. And he's like, yeah, I kill mosquitoes now, but okay. <laughs> All right. So that was really well done, uh, Mike and Brittany. Yep, um, we have one more question. Oh, awesome. Yes, sir. Hi, Billy with Pest Stop. I just wanted to really, it's more of a comment. I appreciate that we're, we're getting these uh, beetles on glue boards and they're not peeing themselves. Um, so that, that is progress. Appreciate that. That's Excellent a throwback maybe to an older episode of, of the podcast. I like it. We've got a, a real fan here. I Again, like it. I don't know how much you're paying all these people in the audience, uh, Brittany and Jim, <laughs> but I didn't have any plants out there. So this is, uh, I feel like I'm you know, up against a wall here. You would have learned by now. I try to keep it honest. I think honesty is important. He's not a smart man. That's obviously very true for anyone out there that knows me. So uh, this is the point where we would ask our studio guest. <laughs> we, don't have, we don't have a studio. <laughs> <laughs> we'd ask our... Um, Zoom guest? Our Zoom guest, our Zoom, Zoom studio guest, uh, to uh, let us know who won. One of the things we always make sure to do is... Uh, ask them to not tell us who was second or third, but only the winner, because we always assume that the second and third place were just a close second. They're a tie. A tie for second. They're a tie. Yeah. So um, how are we going to do this, Mike? Um, so maybe we just do a round of applause. So Applause-o-meter, nice. We have to all be in agreement in... Which one gets the loudest applause? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. How about we vote? How about it's a majority vote? 100% is going to be hard. All right, fine. Majority. Okay. Okay. All right, so 
for everyone in the audience that thought that Jim's paper was the best paper, please clap your hands. I wasn't prepared for dead silence at first. I got a little nervous almost, for you, Jim. I almost felt off I think seat. you just got some pity claps <laughs> because... some sympathy claps. <laughs> yeah. There was... I don't think anybody was going to clap for that one. I'm not going to lie. I'm sweating so bad right now. I don't think I like this. For our we pod- didn't know what we were going to subject ourselves to by <laughs> yeah. doing this in front of a live audience. I didn't think this through. I'm to change my shirt here. Goodness. For our podcast listeners at home, there are a lot of people in this room wearing mittens. <laughs> yeah. so it might not have come through on the microphone. Yeah, it's on the hard recording. to hear a clap through a mask. So it's, yeah, it muffles the, ma- the Thanks, clap. You, thank you for your claps. All right. So uh, I'll take that as a no for Dr. Fredericks. <laughs> Moving on. It's now down to two. Now, who went second? I've forgotten already. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, I that thought one. you want to go down the row or do you want? No, whatever. Go by the yeah. order in which we gave our... I don't. Okay, all right, that's fine. All right, for everyone in the audience who thought that my paper was the best paper, please clap your hands. How much did you pay this gentleman? Hey, zero, <laughs> zero dollars and zero cents. <laughs> and finally, oh, and a slow clap at the end by TJ. I love it. And finally, for everyone that thought that Dr. Campbell's paper was the best paper, please clap your hands. <laughs> I think that we need to crown oh, Brittany. Sam. I don't know what hurts more, think, knowing right off the bat that you didn't stand a chance or going into it thinking that I had the win and only to have it ripped from my grasp. Yeah, that was very yeah. end. Hey, you know one thing that hasn't happened when we've been crowned? We haven't been in Vegas. Like, this is a dangerous combination for me. I'm going to wear this all night. I'm going to be wild. Let's keep it professional, Dr. Campbell. You need to wear that all night. <laughs> all right. So um, one of the things we started up on our last episode, Mike, was um, kind of a play on the idea that many of these um, uh, these science paper topics, these titles are so kind of ridiculous and over the top. Um, and it's just uh, part and parcel of the nature of uh, scientific writing. You have these long titles that are often very complicated and may even seem nonsensical, but they're very specific at the same time. Uh, so Mike dreamed up a new game last, uh, last episode, and you want to explain that for our listeners here? Yeah, sure. So the idea is that each one of us would read you a potential real or fake publication title to some published, potentially published research. And then you would go through and we would uh, take a vote from the audience and you would tell us which ones you thought were real and which ones you thought were fake. So we'll, we'll number them one, two, and three. So Jim will read first as one, Brittany will read second as two, I'll read mine as three, and we're going to ask the audience to tell us which one's the fake one. All right. So here is uh, scientific paper title number one. Nutrient investment and costs associated with alloparental care in strepsipteran parasites of the paper wasp, Polistes exclamens. That was a mouthful. A lot of heavy lifting in that title. All right. So my title is Time and Tissue Specific Antimicrobial Activity of the Common Bed Bug in Response to Blood Feeding and Immune Activation by bacterial injection. All right. And my title is Hygiene Eliciting Brood Simeochemicals as a Tool for Assaying Honeybee Colony Resistance to Varroa Mites. Wow. They all, 
They all sound kind of funky. <laughs> they all sound too fake to be true. So you're number one. I'm, I'm number, number one. two. All right. Number three. Number three. I'm number one. <laughs> Hi, number one. Mm. Jim's number one. Hi, number one. That makes you feel so, better. So um, I don't know how to vote on this. Maybe we use the old applause meter again. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. I don't. I mean, I no longer think the applause meter is great, but I guess we'll, we'll go we, ahead and go with or it. Do we, or do we need to vote? Or I don't, can they just like the yell it out? What's your fake number? See how yes. little preparation we put into this, yes. ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe we could just yes. raise our hands. Please oh. help us. All right. yeah. So okay. Yeah. Well, so everybody our, in the audience, our producer <laughs> said, "There we go." Mike's biggest fan. All right. Who's, Jealousy. Who says that uh, paper number one is a fake title? Is fake. Who who says that ty- that paper number one I is a fake title? Five, six hands. Six, seven, seven hands. Who uh, votes that paper number two is a fake type? Fake title. One, two. Everyone thinks I'm fake. Thir- wait, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And vote for title number three as the fake title. Ooh, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Thirteen. All right. So the audience thinks that Mike's title is fake. That publication was just published yesterday because it was the top email in my inbox for me to find and write down a title for this game. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, that Journal of Economic Entomology. It is that real. we remembered to do three minutes before we started Shh. this. Yeah. <laughs> Months ago. Months ago. Brittany, your uh, title was the uh, next in terms of votes for fake. Uh, is it real or fake? Mine is also real, you guys. It was published in the Journal of Insect Physiology in 2021. And so that leaves me, yes, mine was fake. It came out of my, uh, out of my brain. Are you going we to tell them how? Did you think we were going to need to edit? I thought we were going to have to throw a bleep <laughs> in there somewhere. I will be honest. When I said it came out of my, I didn't know where I was going with it. And so I just said brain. <laughs> Good. Oh, man. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, so it gets really nerdy, though. Jim, do you want to explain to them why that's a fake title? So actually, I did. I, I added some clues in there for entomologists that were listening closely um, alloparental care is parental care that is um, performed by a non-parent of whatever the animal is. And the animal in question here are strepsipterans. Um, the order strepsiptera is an order? Yeah, an, uh, is um, the curly-winged, or twisted-winged parasites. And they're often found on polistes wasps, so that was kind of throw you off. Um, but a parasite lays its egg and it's going to leave in this case, those strepsipterans. So there's no alloparental care because there is no parental care at all. So if you were really listening close and you were super nerdy, you might have picked that up. Neither Brittany or I picked that up when he read that to us. So I don't, I mean, I feel like I can't be nerd queen. You're such a, that was super nerdy. You're you definitely gonna... nerd king. There you go. <laughs> well deserved with that. Yeah. I've usurped the crown. <laughs> no. So what am I, the jester? It's the king and the queen and the jester <laughs> up here. Is that what's going on? Good call. Exactly. <laughs> yep. I didn't want to say it. We'll get you one of those jingly bell hats. <laughs> oh. All right. So that was fun. Um, I'm glad we got to do this with, uh, with a group in the room. Uh, I think we should normally now what we would do is kind of wrap it up with our with our guest and um, invite them to 
uh, you know, to listen and tell their friends. And we want to invite you guys to all listen uh, to the podcast and tell your friends about it, uh, promote it on social media, all those things. But what we're going to do now is kind of our wrap up and we'll do our outro essentially. And then we're going to be asking for at least one volunteer at the end uh, to do our sign off. All right. So let's wrap this thing up. Ready? Well, that's a wrap for another ep. Yeah. See, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's hard to believe. Heavy is the, the head that wears the crown, Jim. Uh, were you at the bar earlier? Well, what time did the opening general session end today? Because <laughs> I started drinking right about then. I knew it. All right, that's a wrap for another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites podcast. And if you are interested in hearing more about any of the research we cover on this podcast, be sure to go over and check out our pestology blog at npmapestology.com. That's right. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the release of another new episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Whoop, whoop. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, my name is Tom Jarzinka with Massey Services. NPMA Bug Bites is the industry source for the latest in science news and pest control research. It's brought to you by the National Pest Management Association. You can find links to the science discussed in this episode, as well as technical and business resources, training opportunities, and information about careers in pest control by visiting npmapestworld.org. All right. Awesome. Let's hear it for Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom.